Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and his church, grow in faith and understanding of God's word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Let me just remind you, if you're watching at home, welcome. We're glad you're with us. If you're live with us, we're glad you're here. Let me just remind you, Easter sign-ups. You've got to sign up to be with us at Easter next week. That's going to help us uh, limit our seating and keep you safe and also help us with our numbers. I think the live 11 o'clock and the live 930 are already full. I think the overflows are close to being full. So please, if you have not already signed up for Easter, you've got to go to our website, rosemontchurch.org, sign up for one of those spots, and then come to whichever time you signed up for uh, so we can get as many people in here as possible. We've got nine different venues. That's three different times, three different locations. That's nine spots you can choose from to sit. So you go and sign up for one of those. Today, as many of you probably know, is Palm Sunday. For most Christians, uh, Palm Sunday is remembered as the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time. He's been to Jerusalem through the course of his ministry multiple times. This is the last time he's going to enter Jerusalem, and it takes its name Palm Sunday. You saw our kids a few minutes ago with the palm branches. Uh, From the account in the Gospels, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, large crowds have gathered. They surround him, cry out to him, wave palm branches in front of him, lay them on the ground at his feet. For Jesus, really, this is the beginning of the end. He would arrive in Jerusalem on Sunday to great fanfare and excitement, and by Friday he would be crucified. Very, very important week for believers known as Holy Week around the world, a time we can celebrate and remember all Christ did for us. I think it's very interesting when you study the Gospels, right? The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you study the Gospels, all four Gospels recount the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem. But something very interesting about the Gospels, you think about all that Jesus did, all that Jesus accomplished, right? He lived on this earth sinless. He walked on water, raised people from the dead, gave sight to the blind, uh, taught his followers, fed the 5,000 of all the things that he did. When you get to the end of his life, about a third of the gospels are dedicated to his last week. That's pretty amazing, right? Of all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, about a third of those writings are dedicated to the final week of the life of Christ. There are a lot of things that happened in that week, a lot of things we could talk about, a lot of things we could see. On Friday, he's going to enter triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. We're going to really think through that today and and really walk through that. He's going to curse the fig tree and cleanse the temple. He's going to teach his followers in great parables. There's going to be a plot by the leaders against Jesus, and eventually Judas is going to agree to betray Christ. On Thursday, he's going to prepare for the Last Supper. He's going to get everything ready. He's going to predict that 
Peter is going to deny him. Eventually, there's going to be the denial in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, crucified, buried. And then we come back next Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But there's a lot that happens in that week. And so I would just encourage you this week, if you would take the time maybe to read through one of the accounts of the Gospels of the last week of Christ. Maybe you could read a different account each day. But I would encourage you this week just to spend some time thinking about all that Christ accomplished, thinking about his last week specifically leading up to Easter. I think that would really prepare your hearts and your minds for the resurrection that we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday morning a week from today. But I want to really think this morning and and focus on Matthew chapter 21, the triumphal entry. I want you to see what it meant to the people living in the first century. There are all kind of connections that they would have made that I'm going to walk through and explain to you this morning. But I also want want you to try to understand what it still means to you today, how you can take this truth and now apply it to your life. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse one, we have it on the screen for you to follow as well. Now, when they, they is Jesus and his followers, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. This is Jesus. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And there's a lot we could say from these passages of Scripture. There's a lot of truth we could bring. But the first one is really foundational to the people of the first century, and it's foundational to us as well. I'm going to give you the truth, and then I'm going to prove it to you in the Scripture here, okay? Truth number one, Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is our Messiah. The people that witnessed this triumphal entry, the people that were in Jerusalem, that had followed Jesus, that understood his ministry, would have known very clearly when he walked into Jerusalem, it wasn't some strange, random event. Jesus was yet again proclaiming that he is Messiah. Now, in order for us to understand that, a little bit of background I want you to see. Jesus had done some pretty incredible things, right? Jesus had healed, walked on the water, all the things that I just mentioned. But Jesus begins to kind of explain to his followers what's going to happen well before he goes to Jerusalem. Something you need to understand about the life of Christ. Jesus wasn't coerced to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't tricked to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't confused. He wasn't made to go to Jerusalem by anybody on this earth. Jesus willingly chose to walk to Jerusalem, right? This was the plan of the Lord being fulfilled in Christ. 
This was all part of the bigger plan. <clears throat> so if you've got your Bibles, I don't have this one on the screen, but I want you to see this. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip back to the book of Mark, right? Or flip over. Matthew, Mark, the very next book over. Flip over to Mark chapter 8 because I want you to see something. And in my Bible at home, the one that I read out of at home and kind of make notes, and I've got these numbered, one, two, and three. I'm going to show you how Jesus begins to predict his death. There's a very clear pattern we see beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Here's what Jesus says. He began, this is Jesus, to teach them, his followers, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again, right? Mark 8, 31. That's the first time, if you're making notes, it's the first time Jesus predicts his death. Fast forward to Mark chapter 9, verse 31. This is the second time. For he, this is Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise, right? That's the second time Jesus has announced exactly what's going to happen to him. The third time is found in the very next chapter, now Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, right? That's, that's uh, elevation, elevation. Jerusalem is higher than the surrounding areas. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now flip back to Matthew 21. You need to understand, this is significant, this is important, right? From eternity past, God had a plan for Jesus to come to this earth, for him to willingly give his life on the cross for our sins. Now what you need to understand, this is why this is significant, this is the connection we're going to make between the first century and the Old Testament and what we believe today. The people that grew up in the first century and the centuries that preceded that, the Jewish people knew clearly from the prophecies of the Old Testament that one day Messiah would come. So for hundreds of years, you need to understand this. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people were looking for Messiah. They grew up steeped in the tradition and the prophecies, and they knew one day. They didn't know when or how or exactly the manner in which it would occur, but they knew that one day Messiah would come, right? So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, everybody there knew Jesus is proclaiming he's Messiah. You say, how do you know that? How do you kind of get this idea that he's Messiah out of him riding into Jerusalem? Let's look at Matthew 21, verse 2. Pull that up on the screen for me, if you would, please. This is interesting, right? Jesus says, go into the village in front of you. I'm in verse 2 here. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Now what the scripture tells us, Jesus is eventually going to get on this animal, ride this donkey into Jerusalem as the people wave palm branches and cry, Hosanna. This doesn't seem like a big deal to the modern Christian. He's riding a donkey in Jerusalem. So what? 
It's a little weird because I've never ridden the donkey necessarily, but back then I get it. They didn't have cars. He's going to get on this animal, ride into Jerusalem. No big deal. Here's the first significance you need to understand. This is the first recorded time in Scripture that Jesus has ridden an animal, number one. No other time, right? He's gone into Jerusalem numerous times in his life. Uh, we don't really pick up the story of Jesus until he's about 30. So his whole childhood, growing up with his parents, he would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. He would have gone back to uh, Galilee and to Judea, the surrounding countryside, the Jordan River. All the times he walked, all the places he went, there's no other recorded time that Jesus rides an animal. Now, that's interesting, but it doesn't really prove anything to us, right? So let's take a step back for a minute. You don't have to look it up, but I want you to listen to Genesis 49. And we're going way back in history because the Jewish people from the beginning understood that Messiah would come. So I want you to listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 49. You don't have to look it up unless you want to. You can just follow with me, read about it later, right? Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. Now just a little bit of history. His 12 sons or 12 of his sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of his sons was Judah, right? Jesus is in the line of Judah. So if you were to kind of draw out the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the beginning, Judah was part of that. Now stay with me, stay with me. Jesus is in the line of Judah. So when Jacob, his father, is blessing Judah in Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8, I want you to listen to what the Bible says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Remember the lion of Judah? We've heard that before. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. Listen to verse 10. Now we're looking ahead. The scepter, that's a ruling staff, shall not depart from you, Judah nor the ruler's staff from between your feet. You can imagine him standing here holding the staff like this until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Right, we're looking ahead to him one day, verse 11. Listen, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. You begin to see connection here. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, right? So from the beginning, we understand Judah is royalty. Somebody's coming. There's something to do with a donkey here. There's something to do with his clothes washed in blood. Now we get it, right? Because we're looking in hindsight to the story. The people of Israel would have understood something's happening. We know a king is one day coming. Something's going to take place with the donkey and the blood and the scepter. We're not quite sure what that's going to look like, but we're anticipating the day when Messiah will come. Now you begin to understand they're looking, they're thinking, and then you factor into that Matthew 21 verse 5. Pull up verse 5 for me because they're, actually let's do verse 4 and then 5. The Bible says this took place as Jesus is writing in to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, now this is from Zechariah, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a beast of burden or on a donkey. Now I've got Zechariah 9 for you. I want you to see it. Pull up Zechariah. Zechariah 9 was written hundreds of years before Christ. He's a prophet. And when he writes, the people of Israel are in exile. There is no king. And so they're looking ahead one day when the king will return. 
Zacharias says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, pull that first truth back up for me, please. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, everybody there knew he was Messiah. You understand that? Everybody knew Jesus was claiming to be Messiah. Not because of anything Jesus said, but because of everything Jesus did. They understood the Old Testament prophecies. They understood Genesis 49. They understood Zechariah 9. They understood all the other prophecies been fulfilled in Jesus. When he rides back into Jerusalem, they understand very clearly that he is Messiah. And look at how they respond. Pull verse 9 up if you would for me. I want you to notice how the people respond. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, right? They're praising him, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, right? So there's this clear picture from Old Testament prophecies, the way that Jesus is living this out in his life, the way Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. Everybody there understood he's making claims yet again to be Messiah, okay? Now, this is a big deal because they understand the significance of the Old Testament, right? But there's something else that happens here. There's something else that takes place that I want you to see in verse 9. The Bible says the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, if you're just kind of scrolling through this, you miss it. But there's a significant truth built in there to verse 9 as they're crying out to the son of David, right? Here's the second truth I want you to see. The first one, Jesus is our Messiah. Truth number two, Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. King. You may remember when they're crawling out, they're crying out to son of David and Hosanna, son of David. David was the most powerful king in the history of Israel, right? And people look back, the Jewish people look back with great excitement and pride in who David was and what David has accomplished. In fact, Zechariah says, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. And so the people of Israel kind of have this twofold approach. They're looking through history for Messiah. They're anticipating the day that Messiah will one day return. They're seeing that first. But the thing they're adding with it is this idea of king. Messiah is going to return as king, right? He's going to be a military ruler. He's going to be a political ruler. He's in the lineage of Judah and eventually David. He's going to be powerful. He's going to control everything. And so just a side note, this is why people that are Jewish still don't believe Christ was Messiah because he's not the military political ruler they're looking for. Jesus didn't come for that reason. And so they've got kind of into their mind that when Jesus comes, not only is he going to be Messiah, they're hopeful he's going to be this military, political ruler. One writer explained it like this. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he did not do so on a horse, the symbol of warfare and the choice of conquerors. He did not even pick a mule, the steed of Jewish kings like David himself. Rather, he chose a donkey, a pack animal, a lowly beast of burden as his royal mount. 
as Zechariah had prophesied, he came humbly and bringing peace. The kingdom of God, which he preached and inaugurated, was not an earthly political kingdom, but the rule of God in the hearts of people who know and serve him. Right, So the people of Israel were looking for this military ruler. Now here's what you need to understand about the time period that the first century when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, these people lived in. During this time, the Romans were in control of all things in Jerusalem, all things in that area. Right? The Jews were no longer in control. Long gone is the time of the powerful Jewish rulers, of the Jewish empire, of the Jewish kings. The Romans ruled with, a, with a, a, an iron fist, total control of all things, and the Jewish people longed for the return of their king. Right? They hoped for Messiah, but they also hoped that this king would come and deliver them and restore the throne of David and reestablish God's kingdom in that land. Right? That's why they shouted. That's why they were excited. That's why they were hopeful. Jesus is coming. They had hoped he would go straight to the rulers of Rome, overthrow them and become again the king of Israel. Here's the problem. The problem is Jesus didn't come as a military ruler. Jesus didn't come as a political ruler. Jesus didn't come to conquer armies. He came to conquer death. Jesus didn't come to rule on the thrones of men. He came to rule our hearts. And so these people that were so expectant, that were so excited, that were so looking for and longing for and hoping for this military ruler, when they see Jesus as Messiah, they believe he's going to be this person. This is very interesting. The same people that cried out Hosanna and cheered for him on Sunday were calling for his execution at the end of the week. Why? Because he didn't. Listen. He did not fulfill their expectations. Fast forward 2,000 years. How do we respond when Jesus doesn't fulfill our expectations? Here's what I mean by that. How, how do we respond when Jesus doesn't answer the prayer like we want him to answer it? How do we respond when Jesus doesn't give us the job we had hoped for? How do we respond when Jesus doesn't heal the loved one that we have desperately prayed for? How do we respond when Jesus doesn't do all the things we think he ought to do? What do we do when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? Right, the temptation for far too many people is to turn away from Jesus. Like, I'm going to love you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you as long as you do these things for me, as long as you take care of my family, as long as I've got a good job, as long as there's enough money in the bank account, as long as these things are going the way I want them to go, everything's good because you're meeting my expectations. But the minute you don't meet my expectations, the minute you don't do what I think you ought to do, then we've got a problem. That's when a lot of people falter in their faith. One writer said this, so many of us seem to think that if Christ doesn't fit our expectations, then we'll just reject him, as the crowds in Jerusalem did. But Christ is Lord. He doesn't have to fit our expectations of him. 
What I'm saying is that we must tailor our expectations to what God decrees, not try to tailor God to fit our expectations. Christ is Lord. He knows what is best. And if we try to make him fit our expectations, what is acceptable to us, or else we will reject him, then that's the path to self-destruction. We must not be like the people in Jerusalem who hailed Christ as their king just so long as he fit their image of what a king should be. Let us rather acknowledge him truly as our king, our Lord, our sovereign, and receive from his hand whatever he decrees. It's kind of like finding this place in our faith where we say, listen, Lord, I really wanted it to be like this. I really hoped it would be like this, but you've got different plans. But Lord, I love you enough, and I trust you enough, and I understand that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that even though it didn't go exactly like I wanted to do, I'm still going to trust you and follow you and love you, right? That's a place of deep faith when we come to that understanding. Where we say, listen, Lord, I'm going to trust you even in the midst of what I think ought to be different. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to trust you. Jesus was greeted with great excitement on Palm Sunday. Where were these people when he was put on trial? Nowhere to be seen. Where were these people when Jesus was crucified? Nowhere to be seen. And so I think there's a couple of really important truths built into the story. The one is the idea of expectation. Jesus doesn't always do what we think he ought to do, and that's okay. We've got to come to a place of peace even in the midst of struggle. But the second thing I want you to see kind of built into this is we think about these people who said all the right things and got all excited and and formed this large crowd and followed Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem only to turn away from him when the going gets tough. I want you to understand that religious activity does not necessarily equal genuine faith. Let me just say that again. Religious activity does not necessarily equal equal genuine faith, right? And, and, and I hope in a very loving and godly way, I step on your toes right now. Make the little heart. If you're just going through the motions, you're just kind of showing up and being part of the crowd and then sitting and nodding and amen and every now and then go to Sunday school occasionally and kind of doing a few good things, but there's no real depth to your life. You fall into the same categories as the people that wave the palm branches to Jesus. Everything's good and you're in the crowd when things are good, but the minute things get bad, you turn from Christ and run the other direction. You need to kind of examine that thought. You need to examine that question. Are you just playing games with the Lord? Are you involved in a lot of religious activity or is your faith real? Are you willing to kind of go to bat for Christ, to do the difficult things, to live for him even in the midst of suffering? I love what what our our friends from last week said that stood up here and kind of talked about their ministry overseas and what they're doing. And I love going to that place. And I love ministering to those people because I love kind of hearing their stories. But you need to understand in lots of other parts of the world, Christianity isn't as easy as it is here. And there are literally millions and millions and tens of millions of believers in other parts of the world. They don't have it as easy as we do. And yet they find a way to serve the Lord and live for the Lord, even in difficult times, even when Jesus doesn't always meet their expectations and doesn't always do all the things that they think he ought to do what are we doing in the midst of our world 
Like all the resources, all the gifts, anything that you could possibly want. I've said this before, and it sounds kind of cliche, but if you're born in America, you won the lottery, period. Period. No question. Travel anywhere else in the world and walk around outside of the touristy areas, and you'll understand in a hurry, you won the lottery. Like we've been given all of this stuff. God has placed us here. What are we doing with this? How serious are we about our faith? Are we willing to follow Christ even in the struggles, even in the difficult times? Are we saying he's Messiah, but he's also king? Because we're real good at giving him some things and not giving him all things, right? We're real good about letting him be king of certain parts of our life and lords of certain part and not of others. We're real good about coming to church on Sunday morning, feeling good about that, and kind of checking that box off and then closing the lid on that box and doing everything we want to do the rest of the week. And then Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, we decide we'll open the box again. Is he truly Lord of your life? But I want you to notice how these people respond as we kind of wind this thing down and come to the end here, right? Jesus is Messiah. Clearly, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is king, just a different sort of king than they had hoped for. And then look at verse 9 again. As the crowds went before him, followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He's Messiah. He's king. Truth number three, Jesus is worthy of our praise. Jesus is worthy of our praise, right? These people are crying out to him. They're laying down these branches. They're shouting to him. They're excited. Palm branches are kind of a sign of victory. Right? You see that through the Old Testament, especially. People would cut them down and wave them and lay them on the ground. It's a sign of victory, a sign of great things. In fact, you see this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John looking to heaven in the end of time. And the Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the king and the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, listen, with palm branches in their hands. Right? There's been this picture of worship really from the beginning of time. It will go through all the way to the end of time. When we get to heaven, we're going to see the glory of the Lord. We're going to understand for the first time ever in our lives his majesty and his true power. And the Bible says we're going to fall down and worship him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That, that's something we look to one day. That's something we hold with great anticipation. That's something we pray about. And hopefully you're excited about one day seeing. And, and really the older I get, the more I long for that. Right? We're looking for that day. But the question is right now, how are we going to worship in the world we're living in today? We, we need to look with anticipation to that one day. Yes, it's coming. But what are you going to do tomorrow to worship the king? What are you going to do this afternoon to praise the Lord? Right? If I say, what does praising the Lord mean? Most people say, we come on Sunday morning, we sing songs, raise hands, uh, allow the spirit to move, open up the Bible, study, go to Sunday school. All those things are true and they're good. And we should continue to do those things. But just listen, if, if you think that worshiping the Lord is confined to one hour on Sunday morning, you're missing it. Right, we should worship the Lord at all times. Did you, did you know that? Every moment of every day. And so part of your challenge in life is to kind of figure out what God's calling is on my life. How can I fulfill that calling? And in the meantime, how can I worship him at all times? How can I worship him tomorrow morning at work? How can I worship him at school? How can I worship him in that extracurricular activity I do at school? Whatever that looks like for me.
How can I worship him with the friends and all the different things I do in life when I'm out to dinner? How can I worship the Lord? Because I promise you, just think about this. If you kind of wrote down all the people you work with, I said, listen, make a list of all the people you work with. That's a long list. And then I compiled that list. Imagine the, I don't know, maybe thousands of names that would be on that list just from the groups of people that have come this morning to to Rosemont. If I said, look at all these people that you work with, all these people that you influence, imagine if every person here, if every person at home watching said, I'm going to start figuring out how to worship the Lord every moment of every day, especially when I'm at work around unbelievers. I'm going to worship the Lord in their presence and in their midst. Imagine how many lives would be touched through doing that. Thousands. Imagine how many people could be changed because of your obedience, because of your desire to serve the Lord, to make him your Messiah, to make him your king, to worship him at all times. All right, this, this is a holy week for us. All right, it's a big week. It starts with the triumphal entry of Christ, culminates in his resurrection, his ascension eventually into heaven. So I just want to encourage you this week as you kind of think through and really prepare your heart for Easter, pray through, study through, understand exactly who Christ is and what that last week meant. But let me just say this as I finish this thing up this morning. There are people, I promise you, in here right now and at home listening to the sound of my voice and overflow, wherever you may be, that don't yet know Christ. Maybe you've heard the stories. Maybe you've even grown up in church. Maybe your, your grandmama or your granddaddy took you to church as a kid, and so you've kind of got that background, but you've never actually given your heart to Christ. You've never actually made him the Lord of your life. I, I just want to encourage you. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you about that here in just a few minutes. I'd love to explain to you how you can repent of your sins and turn from the sinful things of the world to Christ how you can accept him as your Lord and Savior, how that will change forever, not only the way you live life now, but the way you'll live life in eternity. God has done great things. God has shown his love throughout Scripture. God has shown us that he has the plan for our lives as well as for the lives of every person on this earth. My prayer is that you would see him, understand him, love him, and then allow him to do great things in your heart for his honor and for his glory.